is the most important thing in the world? To what are we most deeply attached? I would say that we are most deeply attached to ourselves, to our own lives, and the lives of those around us. The sentient beings who exist right now, in our time, seem to be of the utmost value. It's a different thing to learn that some terrible thing has happened to someone in the past than to learn that such a terror is occurring to someone right now. Something traumatic having happened in our past is not as bad as something traumatic happening now. That is the nature of consciousness. The contents captured inside its borders are always changing. The past only exists in the form of memory and lingering effects. The future only exists in imagination and in potential effects. Today's ruminations begin with the question of immortality. Is it possible to extend being beyond the death of the body? My friend Mike and I used to ponder the possibility of capturing consciousness in a computer system. Computing power and memory have come a long way since we had those conversations. Those were the days of megabytes and dial-up modems. But it's not clear to me that we have progressed as far along the neuroscientific and theoretical dimensions. Traditionally, talk of immortality is wrapped up in the metaphysics of the soul. I am not a dualist, but I talk like one sometimes, and the distinction has to be understood. I don't believe in a soul, immortal or otherwise, but I am nevertheless on a quest as deep and enigmatic as that of religious mystics. It is apparent to me that when I die, I will return to being whatever I was before I was born. If I did not exist prior to my birth in this life, then I will likewise not exist after its passing. I am, of that I am certain, and my pursuit here is to determine what I am. How do I fit into the universe? By extension, how do you fit into the universe? What are conscious beings, really? Since I understand there to be only one universe in which we exist, by definition, and since I understand that to exist means to be a part of the fabric of cause and effect, I see no immediate reason why we could not persist indefinitely. This body will never hold together for the journey, though. A 2002 paper by Brett Weinstein and Deborah Shizek introduced something called the Reserve Capacity Hypothesis, explaining why humans and other animals are doomed to limited lifespans. Telomeres are DNA protein complexes that occur at the ends of chromosomes, where they protect the DNA from being degraded. As cells divide, the telomeres shorten in length, and when they are critically short, the cell stops dividing. Weinstein and Shizek summarized the reserve capacity hypothesis, writing, quote, We hypothesize that in vertebrates, a telomeric failsafe inhibits tumor formation by limiting cell proliferation. The same system results in the progressive degradation of tissue function with age. These patterns are manifestations of an evolved antagonistic pleiotropy in which extrinsic causes of mortality favor a species-optimal balance between tumor suppression and tissue repair. With that trade-off as a fundamental constraint, selection adjusts telomere lengths, longer telomeres increasing the capacity for repair, shorter telomeres increasing tumor resistance. In environments where extrinsically induced mortality is frequent, selection against senescence is comparatively weak as few individuals live long enough to suffer a substantial phenotypic decline. The weaker the selection against senescence, the further the optimal balance point moves toward shorter telomeres and increased tumor suppression. The stronger the selection against senescence, the farther the optimal balance point moves toward longer telomeres, increasing the capacity for tissue repair 
slowing senescence and elevating tumor risks, unquote. This means that animals like us have evolved to exhibit a limited capacity to repair tissue damage. Our skin thins and wrinkles. Our arteries harden. You get the point. The reason this occurs is because unlimited cell division will eventually lead to cancer. Presumably, if we had much longer telomeres, we would all get cancer by the time we reach adulthood. But if telomeres were a lot shorter, we would age very quickly and die young. So Weinstein and Shizek's hypothesis proposes that natural selection favored a trade-off. The bad news for us is that we might not be able to extend human life by very much, no matter what technology we come up with. But what about the mind? Could we effectively become immortal beings, even if we cannot become immortal human beings? It seems to me that an important question needs to be answered before we consider practical strategies for effective immortality. Namely, is consciousness persistent over the lifetime? I certainly feel as though I am the unbroken continuity of this conscious mind. I appeared when this organism was a small child, and excepting those interceding periods of deep sleep, I've been in the world ever since. Every morning I wake up with the certainty that I am the very same being I was yesterday. I ceased being for a while, and now I'm back to face a new day with its new set of circumstances. But I am me. If this is the case, if we really do persist across the lifetime of our human host, then it is possible, maybe even highly plausible, that we conscious beings could be sustained in the universe beyond the mortal lives of human bodies. I have suggested before in this podcast that consciousness is a structure of causality, and I have elaborated my own theoretical model for how this might work. But even if my framework is in error, I maintain that consciousness must have identity with something in the physical universe be it field or function or fundamental particle. If individual instances of consciousness, which we can call beings, exist perpetually across the operating lives of our brains, then we should be able, at least in principle, to engineer its rescue from the living brain. For the sake of this conversation, let's allow that consciousness is a structure of causality produced on the substrate of the thalamocortical brain. The cortex and the thalamus are composed of networks of neurons, which cannot on their own be expected to live much beyond the body's expiration date. We might carve open the skull and fish out the brain, sever its nerve connections and plop it into a suitable oxygenated medium with salts and sugars and so on. We might hook up some rudimentary stimulating devices to keep the thing occupied for a while. That part is ultimately a matter of getting the procedure right and hopefully a pair of careful hands to undertake it. We might call this the easy problem of immortality, incubating the brain in a sustainable state of nourishment and stimulation. But this is not immortality, after all, since the biological substrate cannot be relied upon to go on and on without some biochemical error somewhere, or God forbid a power outage or critical overheating oversight causing its death. Hey, who set this thing to boil? Professor Simpson is going to be pissed when he comes in and sees this. The harder problem of immortality is replacing the biological brain with a durable manufactured substrate. But even this is a matter of engineering. If we can make a functioning replica of the structures in question, specified to each individual brain such that each neuron is replaced by an equivalent cyber neuron or whatever, we should be able to maintain a state of persistent consciousness so that our subject can keep on being. Not living exactly, but living is overrated. It is being that matters. Having accomplished that, we can move the artificial brain into an artificial body, wire it up so that it functions, and presto, we've done it. Obviously, this would be a technical feat way beyond our current knowledge, but the whole thing actually seems plausible. 
There is a wrinkle, though. I started this discussion with the important question. Is consciousness persistent over a lifetime? Maybe it's not. I have alluded to this concern in previous episodes, but I'd finally like to give this possibility some thought. If it seems obvious to you that your mind has amounted to one and the same being every day going back to childhood, let's consider a thought experiment to locate a weak point in your conviction. Obviously, you have changed across your lifetime. Just as your body has grown and matured and gained experience, for better or worse, you nevertheless feel like the same person. You are one being that has more memories and knowledge and everything else. Here's the thought experiment. Suppose we could make an exact duplicate of you. You go under anesthesia. They wheel you on a gurney into an operating room. Now you wake up out of your deep unconsciousness and there are two of you. You one and you two, it says on the placard next to you and your neighbor respectively. You are certain that you are the original. You remember everything that went down prior to the procedure and here you are, every bit as you as you have ever been. You are you one and the other is you two, which is the original. After all, the other guy is every bit as certain that he is the original. This is the same problem as the old teleporter trick. If all you are sending to the new destination is instructions for my recreation, how do I know that I will be the one who appears on the other side? This thought experiment, if its implications are correct, suggests that we might not persist across the human lifetime after all. Maybe each time this human wakes up, it conjures a new consciousness. That conscious being would have all of the memories and context that the previous one had. It would not know that it was an imposter. Even Descartes wouldn't go so far as to claim, I thought, therefore I was. He made his edict in the present tense and only for the present moment. The past and the future would have been subject to doubt. Speaking to you now, I know that I have written and recorded over 50 previous episodes of this podcast. Or have I? Maybe Jesse has, but I haven't. This is my first time on the mic. It's my turn to play the role of Jesse, but in no way is he my person. In the past, this thought has caused me some distress. The fact that I find this line of contemplation funny, which I do, is no consolation. I often find horrible and disturbing things funny. It's funny to me because I can't handle how seriously unfunny it is. I am frightened by the prospect that I am not a persistent being for at least the length of this one human lifetime. But today, the idea occurs to me with something of a different character. What if this is true? My first thought was that if I actually believed it to be true, that this is my only day on earth, I would behave very differently, like this is the end of the world. But it isn't. Jesse will go on without me. He has friends and loved ones and children. Today they are my friends, my loved ones, my children. He has responsibilities. Today they are my responsibilities. I could shirk them and do something else with my day. It's my one and only day, after all. Fuck Jesse, and to hell with his stupid family. They aren't really mine. But that's not at all how I feel today. I love these people, and I care about the being that will be Jesse tomorrow. Let's take this seriously. I am personified empathy. I know exactly what it is like to be Jesse today. I am Jesse. I care about Jesse. I should pay it forward. I have had the privilege of this day in the life of this person, and I can do my part to leave it better off for whoever is on the shift tomorrow. The being that occupied Jesse yesterday or the day before didn't pass the buck. Why should I? In fact, I'd like to do even better than they did. I'd like to make a difference with this little corner of reality I find myself in. Whether it is really I that will be in this position tomorrow or some other being just like me, I'm better off doing my part today. In the past, I think I avoided this line of reasoning out of fear that I would feel differently. 
the way we wonder about how we would feel if we really accepted hard determinism. It's disempowering. But having given my own brevity some direct thought, I am not afraid. I am grateful. Consider, too, that if this is the case for me and for you, then it's also true for my children, my neighbors, my co-workers, and friends. They, too, are occupied today with newborn beings, and they don't even know it. It causes me to look at other people differently, with a greater degree of empathy. I am Jesse today, and they are who they are today. I might wake up to being in prison, or dying an old man or woman in pain. And if I did, if I only knew that this was my one day, I think I could better endure my ordeal. I might accept my situation and take one for the team of human being. Today I shall bear this cross, better me than someone else. I shall do my best here where, I, where and who I am. Or shall I do their best? Yeah, I guess that one. Moreover, I note that I live my life in view of tomorrow and next week. What folly it is, if this is my only day in existence, to take it so much for granted in the misguided delusion that there was always another day. Everything I do, almost all the time, unless I'm fully engaged in something meaningful or exciting, is done as if to get it over with and get on to the next thing. Mindfulness meditation is a practice specifically designed to break this tendency, to stare directly at the present experience as it is happening and take real notice. I don't know whether consciousness is persistent over the lifetime. It sure feels like it is. I don't truly know that consciousness is continuous for more than a period of a few minutes. I'm pretty sure it is, but that could be an illusion. Remember when I talked about the amnesia case of Clive Wearing? I read you a brief transcript of a conversation caught on video between Wearing and his wife Deborah. Wearing's wife asks, Do you know how we got here? He says no. She says, I reckon we've been here about ten minutes at least. Wearing replies, Well, I've no knowledge of it. My eyes only started working now. His wife asks, And you feel absolutely normal? He says, Not absolutely normal. No, I'm completely confused. Confused, she says. He responds, Yes, if you've never eaten anything, never touched anything, never smelled something, what right have you to assume that you're alive? She says, Hmm, but you are. And Waring says, Apparently, yes, but I'd like to know what the hell's been going on. Clive Waring had no long-term memory, being perpetually limited to the present moment and perhaps a minute or so of history as his sole evidence for being. It would seem that he was in a state of consciousness and rather perplexed to find himself there. We have every reason to assume that if we were stricken amnesic in the same way right now, we would find ourselves similarly positioned. That's obvious enough. But consider this. Perhaps we are new to this world right here in this present moment now, and it is access to the brain's memory system that gives us the illusion of continuity of being. I'm not making any claim about this. I'm just observing that we take an awful lot at face value when it comes to ourselves and our positions in space and time. I previously mentioned an idea in physics with regard to time, the concept of presentism, that only the present moment exists, as opposed to eternalism. In his book, Your Brain is a Time Machine, Dean Buonamano wrote, quote, Presentism, as the name hints, states that only the present is real. Under presentism, the past is a configuration of the universe that once existed, and the future refers to some yet-to-be-determined configuration. Eternalism, in sharp contrast, states that the past and future are as equally real as the present. There is absolutely nothing particularly special about the present. Under eternalism, now is to time as here is to space. Even though you currently find yourself to be in one point in space, you know that there are many other points in space. Different rooms, cities, planets, and galaxies that are all equally valid places to be in. Similarly, 
Even though you perceive yourself to be in a point in time you call now, there are past and future moments in time in which other beings and younger and older yous find themselves. Unquote. Skipping forward, he writes, quote, Presentism certainly conforms to our intuition that as each instant of our lives transforms into a past moment, it is gone. Whether or not that moment leaves an imprint in our memory, the moment itself ceases to exist. Presentism also corroborates our feeling of control, that our decisions and actions shape an open future. Neuroscientists rarely have to grapple with the issue of presentism versus eternalism, but in practice, neuroscientists are implicitly presentists. They view the past, present, and future as fundamentally distinct, as the brain makes decisions in the present, based on memories of the past, to enhance our well-being in the future. But despite its intuitive appeal, presentism is the underdog theory in physics and philosophy." Unquote. Perhaps these two views can be reconciled. Perhaps consciousness only exists in the present, but all times and places exist at once in objective reality. Perhaps the present moment is just a window, and all of us conscious beings here and now are nothing more than those mental events which occur in this window. Given this view, whatever the mind is in terms of physics, whatever its true identity, it only exists for a brief moment. It is precisely that one thing located exactly there in space and time. And shit, if that's true, then perhaps I am reliving this same 60 seconds of being forever and ever and ever. This little piece of the universe is me, and that is all I am. I don't believe this, but I can't rule it out. In yesterday's guided meditation on the Waking Up app, Sam Harris summed it up well. He said, quote, However your mind feels in this moment, recognize that this moment is the only moment in your life that is your life. This is the only moment that stands a chance of being real. Everything else is just something you're thinking about. Unquote. Immortality might, in principle, be possible. Maybe it just comes down to a problem of engineering. As far as I can tell, to answer that question, we need to know what conscious being is. This discussion might be frivolous. I see that I have ventured out a bit further into the twilight zone than I normally do, and that really is saying something. This is episode 52, after all. I was bound to jump the shark at some point, if only for one session. But I have learned something from writing this essay. I have gained some insight that I hope I don't soon forget. The truth is fascinating to pursue, and sometimes its pursuit is frightening. We must challenge our fondest beliefs if we are to know what belief really means. We must question the things we are certain of if we are to know how certain they really are. And when we do, we gain courage. We gain wisdom. We learn who we are. Or we learn who we might not be after all. Mm -hmm.